0: Amen. Amen. Thank you guys. Music um, on Sunday morning is so important. It is for me. Just opens up my heart. Just takes away the distractions that are there around me, um, that are distracting me. And so I appreciate um, our music team and um, our audio team and uh, really, just all of those who minister here to make this time um, this morning special. I want to add, just add to the announcements that were made early this morning. Now, if you weren't here when we first started, our announcements on Wednesday. Matt uh, Matt Wolf going to be sharing about his trip um, to Uganda. So, for those of uh, the young people, the elementary age young people who are in our class on Wednesday, um, I want to let you guys know you're going to be you're going to be joining your parents uh, in that and. What a great class that is. Let me just ask, um, let me just say this to you young people. Come with a question. Come with a question for Matt. You know, he came and he, um, before he left, our class has been praying for him, but he came and kind of let them know what he was going to be doing. And so I'm sure there's a question. So come with a question. Matt, if they all ask a question, there'll be about 20 questions, okay? Just so you know. But if, if some of you could just come with a question, that would be helpful. You know, our, um, our young people... Uh, In this church body, um, are such an important part of our church family, and discipleship of those young people is is so important um, to this church family. Uh, I know even as the fours and fives are dismissed, um, we have our we have um, Pat and Barb uh, uh, um, or it's I guess it's Bonnie and and uh, Linda um, today, but they switch. So we have these empty nesters who are going and. And ministering and discipling those young people, so that uh, so that you can be here um, with us this morning. And I just I just want to say thank you um, to that team that does that, and those who do the nursery, and and the whole team um, that's involved. Um, if you're if you're visiting us, or if you're um, new to this church family, maybe just a week or a couple of weeks, um, we uh, teach uh, from this pulpit through a preach team. So we have different guys that are preaching from, and we're doing it from different books. Um, So this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to be in the book of 1 John. So you can be turning to the epistle of 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but the epistle. If you don't have a Bible, get a Bible. There should be one in front of you in your pew. It's very important. It's what we do. And the words that are in God's words that we read and that we look at are more important than anything I could possibly say. These are the inspired words of God. And also, if you're new to us or just been with us for a few weeks, you need to know that we do believe in the inspiration of God's Word. All Scripture, Paul tells Timothy, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The teaching part is that instruction, that's the part that where we engage our minds then. And that's part of even what we do here on Sunday morning is, is part of our teaching ministry. Um, God's truth is brought to our attention and God has spoken and he has not studied. The reproof part is the intersection of our minds and our hearts. It's the intersection, right? If you're a parent, you know that there's instruction, Right. And then there's the reproof, and you look into the eyes of that child, and there's that intersection where you, got it, where you want to know, is that going to get to the heart? And so the reproof portion of Scripture is where there's that intersection between our mind and our heart. And then the correction, that's the engagement of the heart. That's where we change. That's where we decide, I'm going to yield to the authority of God's Word. I'm going to yield, and I'm going to change. I'm going to be changed. And then training? Let's just rinse and repeat over and over again as we do instruction, reproof, correction, rinse and repeat. What it is, is it's developing a habit of the heart, a habit of the heart in our lives as we look at God's Word. And you also need to know that we believe there's only one proper interpretation of Scripture as we look at Scripture. And that is what the author intended to communicate to us. It's not what I think. It's not what does it mean to you, what does it mean to me. It's what is the author communicating to us um, through his word. And that author being the Holy Spirit, who has superintended human authors, who wrote. It's like Amelia. You know, in the mornings, Amelia, um, um, I'm not, I got two Amelia's over here. I'm looking at them. Um, but Amelia does the artwork and the announcements of the birthdays and the anniversaries. And she uses multicolored pens, Right. The author of that is Amelia, and she's using the personalities of those pens that are on that board as you see that. And so the, and so God, through His Holy Spirit, uses the personality of the, of the authors um, of the books that we have to communicate His Word to us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and let's ask Him to bless our time together as we look in His Word. Will you join me in prayer, Father? Um, we come your word with humble hearts um, there's much to learn and so often I know in my own life the problem isn't that I don't understand it but the problem is I don't want to obey it and um, I just pray that you would produce in us a heart a yielding heart that wants to be obedient obedient children for the glory of Jesus Christ and for your glory. And so as we approach your word, you have promised us in First Corinthians 2 that you've given us your spirit, the spirit from you, that we might understand the things that have been freely given to us. So bless our time as we open your word. May it be profitable for us, for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> We're in the epistle of First John. First John, our text. This morning we're going to be focusing really on, we're in chapter 2. Um, so in prior weeks that I've been preaching, we pre- uh, but we've been through chapter 1, we're in chapter 2. Um, we're going to focus on uh, verses 3 through 11. But I'm going to back all the way up and we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 1 just to read it. Just for context, okay? Just for context. Always important to have context. So if you're there in, that, in the epistle of 1 John... Um, I'm reading from the um, ESV. Um, I think it's the NASB that's in, in, our, in our pews. They're very similar, um, but follow along as I read. Um, John says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we've seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we have heard from him, that is Christ, and proclaim to you that God is light. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him, that is Christ, and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The main point of my message this morning is this, our love for one another is a public testimony to a life changed by the person of Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Our, our writer, just as a review, our writer is the Apostle John, um, identified by Jesus as one of the sons of thunder, James and John, right? Early in their ministry, they're ready to call down fire on the Samaritans because they, they won't welcome Christ as he's passing through there to Jerusalem. Um, but as John writes his gospel and as he writes his epistle, he's, a, he's, he's different. After walking with Christ in this ministry, he's a different. He identifies himself in his gospel as the one whom Jesus loved. Now, that's not because John thought Jesus loved him more than the other disciples at all. But I think John just had an incredible awareness of the love of God in his life because of what it had done in changing. And you see that. You see that in the gospel, and you're going to see it in this epistle. It's just a short epistle of 1 John over and over again as he talks about the love of God. John's audience are believers, um, and he affectionately calls them little children. Christ used that same expression to his disciples um, when he, he would address them as little children. In John 13 and John 21, John highlights that in his gospel that he called these disciples little children. And John has that same affection um, for these believers. But mixed into this audience are unbelievers. This audience that he's talking to, that he's addressing are unbelievers. There are false teachers claiming to have a relationship with God, while at the same time walking in darkness. A lifestyle marked by sin. They're... Walk did not match their talk. And John wants to both encourage the believers that are here and exhort them, but he also wants to draw a clear line. By this you may know, he keeps saying, by this you know. He wants to draw a clear line so that they can know who are those who are are believers, true believers in Christ, and who are those who are false teachers, unbelievers in Christ that have been mixed in to that group. Later, in in the same epistle in chapter 5, as as John closes it, he, he says again, I write these things to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. He's reassuring them constantly throughout this epistle, and yet at the same time, he's calling out the false teachers that are among them. You know, when we think of false teachers, we typically think in our day of those who deny the deity of Christ. That's that's what I think of. Typically, when you think of the false teachers, you think of false religions, you think of those who deny uh, the deity of Christ. However, in this case, the false teachers are denying the humanity of Christ. That's what they're denying. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. To deny either his deity or his humanity is to deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. God told Adam... In the garden, if you sin, you die. That's what God told Adam. You sin, you die. The penalty of sin is death. Not the death of an animal, but your death, Adam. Your death. A judgment falls on man, the offender. The sacrifices of the bulls and goats and even that first lamb that God sacrificed to cover Adam and Eve was simply that, It was simply a covering. That was not the atonement for their sin. The only thing that was going to satisfy God's judgment against man's sin was for man to die. And that's what Christ did. And he had to be perfect to do that. He had to be sinless. And so the life of Christ is every bit as important as the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ in the proclamation of the gospel. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. For since the law, so this is the Mosaic law, this is the sacrificial system. The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they, that is those sacrifices, not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, this is the bulls of the goats, okay? In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible, impossible, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Impossible. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but when christ but when christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins his sinless life he sat down at the right hand of god waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool a footstool for his feet for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being perfected and sanctified it's finished Christ. Christ died in our place. The secular worldview, really think, we think of the secular worldview in our time, think of the secular worldview of the time of of these believers here that John is writing to, had infiltrated the church. The Greek philosophy taught that there was a separation between body and spirit. They taught that the body was evil, and hence, because it's material and dies, the evil of the body is inconsequential. It's of no consequence, Right. Just go on sinning. There's no cause. However, they thought the spirit was separate from the body, so the spirit could achieve the sinlessness. So they went around proclaiming the sinlessness all while living a lifestyle, a lifestyle of sin and walking in darkness. You know, here's a note to self. Note to self, right? Note to self. Any teaching that minimizes the depravity of man and elevates the goodness of man is a lie. It's a lie. If it denies the depravity of man, and it elevates in any way the goodness, and that's, you can turn it on TV, the goodness of man is a lie. The false teaching today is that man is basically good and Jesus makes him better. That's a lie. Man is depraved in his heart. He's a God-hater and a self-lover, and there's nothing apart from the death of Jesus Christ that can save him. You know, for some reason, the philosophy is that God is just kind of like Santa Claus. He's got kind of this relative goodness, and basically everybody's going to be okay. That's, that's, that's a lie. That's a lie in our time, just like those lies existed in the time and the place where John is writing to these believers. Where there is no depravity of man, and where there is no holiness of God, there's no need for the atoning work of Jesus Christ. On the cross. John says these are lies. And they are in John's day and they are in our day too. And we need to be mindful of those. The false teachers polluted the gospel of Jesus Christ. They denied the depravity of man. They denied the sinlessness of Christ and his humanity. They denied the necessity of the cross and the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. And they denied the physical resurrection of Christ. Ultimately, right? If the body is evil, then they denied the, they denied the physical A little physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so John reminds his readers that Jesus Christ is the real thing. That which was from the beginning. He starts out chapter 1, verse 1. Which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life, Jesus Christ in the flesh, was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That's what John is proclaiming. It's the person of Jesus Christ. He is eternal life. It's a life defined by a restored relationship with God which is expressed in our relationships with one another. And we're going to talk about that. You can't just go around saying, hey, I'm saved, God loves me, and not love others. It doesn't work that way, and John's going to make that very clear. So John reiterates that that, that Jesus Christ is fully man, because that's what was... He reiterates this, that sin is a reality in the life of every believer. You cannot say that we're without sin when you're walking in the light. John reiterates that Jesus Christ and his humanity lived a sinless life. He says, Jesus Christ... The righteous, the righteous one. And John reiterates that Jesus alone satisfies God's wrath upon sinful mankind. In verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, He, that is Christ, is a propitiation for our sins, a satisfaction for our sins. So John exhorts his audience, don't abandon the truth that you've been taught from the beginning. Don't listen to the false teachers and don't walk in darkness like they walk. You know, I, try to, I was trying to make it, just think about it. what would it would be like, put myself in John's place. And now, now I'm an older man. I'm a father of four, a grandfather of many. And um, I think about what time in my life is, is my most, most conscious of this. And I, for you for your young moms and dads, like I say, when, you, when you're a parent and you, you send your kids off to college, you're thinking, man, I just, you know, you're just saying, hold on to the truths that you've been taught. Hold on to those truths. And I think that's, I think that's where, where John is. And hold on to those. And at the same time, reminding them, this is who you are. When, when the empty philosophies and the lies of this world infiltrate their, their, their friend groups or whatever it is, he reminds them, you remind them, this is who you are. And there's a dividing line between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. John reminds his readers there's only one reality. <laughs> in our culture, you get to define your own reality. John says there's only one reality. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That is the reality. And then John says there's two different there's, there's two ways there's two different ways we can respond to the light. And let me and I and the Lord gave me an illustration of this a couple weeks ago. So, Kim and I have a dermatologist appointment. Now, for you young kids, you young kids a dermatologist is a doctor that looks at your skin. Okay, okay, dermat So you know dermatologists. So as you get older, you go to the doctor a lot. You go for all kinds of things, and the skin doctor is one of them, especially if you live in the south. Um, so we're going to we're going to the dermatologist, and do you know what the largest instrument is when you walk into that patient room and you sit down. You know what the largest instrument is? When I was a kid, I thought the largest instrument in every doctor's office was a syringe with a monster needle. That's what I always thought it was. I still think, Kim will tell you, I go into a doctor's office, I'm still ready to faint dead away. But the largest instrument in a dermatologist's office is what? A light. And it is big. Big. If you haven't been there, if you ever, you've ever you been to a luxury hotel or kids, maybe your mom has one of these. You go into the bathroom and the powder room and there's this light, right? It's a circle of light. It's got a little mirror in it. It's a really bright light. And she looks into that and what she's looking for are imperfections so that she can cover them up, right? That's what you want to do. You want to, you kind of want to, and, and I'm thankful for that. Our ladies. They're beautiful. I love what you all do with your makeup, and that's great. But, that, but you're covering up those things. So when you go into a dermatologist's office, there's that monster light that he's shining on you, and he's looking for the same thing. He's looking for imperfections, right? Um, but I sure hope your, your response to those imperfections aren't the same. So, he's, so here. he's looking at my back. I can't see my back. I've never seen my back. Kim's seen my back, and she knows, and she's supposed to be, I'm, I'm supposed to be checking her back, she's supposed to be checking mine. But he's looking at my back, and he's going, good, this looks good, this looks good, this looks good, this looks good. This looks good. I don't like that. Man, all that this looks good just faded away in my mind when he says, "Ooh, I don't like that." Isn't that what he said? He said, oh, I don't like that. And my heart just sank. I mean, it just sank. Now, what should be my response to that? Oh, well, have you got a little something back there to cover that up? I uh, don't worry about it. I'm, I, you know, let's just ignore it. Maybe we could rationalize. Not no. You know what my response is? Let's get rid of it. Let's get rid of it. That's what God's Word is designed for. It's a light. It's, it's not there to make us feel good about ourselves. There is encouragement, but it's there. If, if we're being conformed to the image of Christ, we need the light to expose sin in our lives. Jesus said there's two kinds of people in this world, those who walk in the light and those who walk in darkness. And those who walk in the light, um, John says, enjoy two things. They enjoy fellowship, an ongoing fellowship with both God and with one another, and they enjoy an ongoing cleansing of sin. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. For those who walk in darkness, they deny the presence of sin in their lives. Therefore, they deny the necessity of the atoning work of Jesus Christ in their life. Don't need the cross when there is no sin. They profess, to know, they profess to know Christ, but in their lives and in their walks, they deny him. They're liars. John says they're liars. He uses some pretty strong language. Those who walk in the light of God's truth, they see sin for what it is. It's a defamation of the person and character of God. And therefore, they confess their sins on a daily basis. If we confess our sins, John says, he is faithful and just to forgive give us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That confession is in the present tense. It is ongoing. We confess our, in that confession, the child of God finds forgiveness and cleansing. They find that it's their reality. Austin was, was saying this. We, we understand it's our very reality because of who we are in Christ, all because of the character of God, His justice and His faithfulness, the work that God has already completed on the cross for us. John's point in 1 John 1, 9, and typically this is misinterpreted and mis- misquoted. John's point is not that confession is required before we can have forgiveness. That's not his point because he changes tense of verbs from present um, to aorist. His point is that walking in the light, his whole point in his context is that walking in the light results in exposure sin and confession of sin. Forgiveness, and we, and we have a forgiveness that already belongs to us because of who we are in Christ. It's a completed work. Jesus said it's finished. It's done. A life, marked by conf- a life marked by confession differentiates those from us from those who walk in the light and those who walk in darkness. Where there is confession of sin, you can be assured there's walking of light. Where there's no confession of sin, you can be assured there's walking in darkness. John says, you can tell. We can know. We can know, he says. In chapter 2, John reminds his readers that the forgiveness and cleansing belongs to believers because of who we are in Christ, but it's not a license to sin. Okay? You'll remember this from our last message. Um, really, to the contrary, the, the closer we walk in fellowship with God, the more that we're conformed to the image of Christ, the more sin will be exposed, and, we'll, and we will rid that from our lives. But as, long as we, but as long as we live in this flesh, we have sin. We have sin. Um, but for those of us who are born again, for those who have been, who've been regenerated by the Spirit, we no longer are slaves to that, na- that sin nature with us. We're not slaves to it. We don't have to yield to the temptation. I think I quoted this last time. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, One of the marks of a child of God is that although he sins, he does not love sin. He may fall into sin, but he, like a sheep, which if it tumbles into the mud, is quickly up again. For it hates the mire. hates that sin. That's what God puts within us. The sow wallows where the sheep is distressed. I love that quote. Yet when we do sin, John says we have an advocate who is the righteous, the sinless Son of God, Jesus Jesus Christ. And this advocate is the very one who is completely satisfied. John uses the the word propitiation. The holy wrath of God for our sins. It's paid in full. Why do we need an advocate? We talked about this last time. Why do we need an advocate? Because we have an, an accuser. Does Satan have any grounds upon which to accuse one who has put his or her faith in the person of Jesus Christ? Do they? Does he? No. Not at all. John, but Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul, and in the same chapter, in chapter 8, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies who is there to condemn? These are rhetorical questions, Paul, Paul asks. Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who, is, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Then why does God allow this accuser to accuse us before the heavenly hosts? Why does God allow that? Why does God allow Satan to accuse us? And I suggested this last time. Because each time we are accused, it results in our advocate, Our advocate, Jesus Christ, declaring the magnificence of God's grace by his atoning work on the cross. Isn't that amazing? Every time I sin, every time Satan accuses me, it gives Jesus Christ the opportunity to put himself on display and to bring glory to himself. And that's what it's all about. Satan has been utterly defeated at the cross. And all of creation, including the heavenly host, are reminded of this defeat each time Satan accuses us, isn't that amazing? I love that. I love. It's not an excuse to sin, but I just can't believe. I didn't, check and checkmate. I love the way God has ordained that. That every time Satan accuses me, Christ is glorified. And so John reminds his readers that one of the defining characteristics of those who walk in the light is marked is a life marked by confession of sin. In verse 3 of chapter 2, John identifies a second characteristic of those who walk in the light. And it's those who keep his commandments. 1 John 2.3 says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. For the true child of God, obedience to the commands of God are an expression of who we are in Christ. Obedience is another identifier of those who walk in the light. And John is drawing a clear and bright line between those who walk in the light and those who don't walk in the light. You don't see confession, you see disobedience. You can tell. Right? You guys, you guys, you hear it people say, "Well, we can't, we can't, we we can't know." Well, I don't know. John here's saying, "You can know. By this we could know. We can know." And that second, the second expression of who we are in Christ is just a life of humble obedience to the word of God. When we looked at this, we said that our obedience is not the root. It's not the root of our salvation. It's the fruit of that regeneration. It is the fruit. And so in in, in verse 5 of chapter 2, John now, and, we're, and this is where we're going to pick up in verse 5, really. John introduces us to a third expression, a way you can tell a third expression of those who know God, and who walk in the light. Right? The first is confession. The second is obedience. The third is love. Love for one another. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. That's another characteristic of those who walk in the light. Let me define a couple words here real quickly. The love of God. You know, we think about the love of God. Now, undoubtedly, millions, and I mean millions of sermons, have been preached on the love of God, right? You would agree with me on that. But let me, let me just make two observations about love. I'm going to make them from John's, um, just from our own text here. Just flip one page over to First John chapter 4, and we're going to pick up in verse, in verse 7, 7 through 13. John gives us, okay, here's John's definition, right? The same group that he's writing to, here's his definition. Beloved, let us love one another, John says, for love is from God. Love has an origin, okay? Just make a note. Love has an origin. Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love, that is with the love of God, does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, John continues, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know, by this we know. Here, there it is again. By this we know. That we abide in him and he in us because, we, because he has given us his spirit. I'm just going to make two observations about the love of God. One is that the love of God is one way. Write that down. It's a one way love. It's just one way, one direction. It's both unmerited and it's unconditional Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this, not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. You can't say that you have contributed one single thing to your salvation, to who you are in Christ. Nothing. You don't get to boast about it. Not a bit. God gets all the glory. It's unmerited. We have contributed Nothing. But we had we had this conversation in the preach team. This conversation came up. I, Tom, I see Tom and Kim aren't here this morning, but Tom was. We're talking about this. It's more than unmerited because un, it's 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 not neutral. Our our attitude our position before God is not neutral. It's not like well, okay, I'm not going to merit any of it, but I'm I'm going to be neutral. We're not neutral in our attitude towards God. We are enemies of God. The unbeliever is an enemy of God. We're I've said this a hundred times. We're self-lovers and God-haters. That's who we are apart from Christ. Paul says it like this in Romans 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved in this life. It's it's a one-way love. It's unmerited and it's unconditional as it relates to us. Now, it does have one condition, and that's God's will, okay? But in terms to God's relation to us, it's completely unconditional. It's all based on his will, his love for us. We are completely depraved. God loves me in spite of me. That's just the reality of God's love. All right, observation number two. It's a one-way love, right? It's a one-way love. It's unmerited. It's unconditional. Number two, it's marked by self-sacrifice. God's love comes at personal cost. It comes at personal cost. He sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. God himself, in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, stepped down from heaven and he took on the flesh of man and he willingly, willingly went to the cross, unjustly condemned by man so that he could take on my condemnation in my place from God. Philippians 2. We don't have time to read it. Look at Philippians 2. About the humility of Christ in doing so. You know, I think about, I try to think about one-way love that I experience. Um, What's an example I could use for one-way love as as we're just thinking about this? Because it's easy to talk about. um, I think, you know what I think about? I think of a mother giving birth to a baby. (laughs) I've witnessed four of those. And let me tell you, that's a one-way love. When I see the pain and the suffering that goes through that baby contributes nothing but pain and suffering coming through that birth canal and I see that mother's love for that baby I see a one way love that's a one way love and we see it you know and sometimes we can see it in relationships too you know I think about my relationship with my wife is is such that our goal in life as a married couple is to put on display the love of Christ right that that is why that 's why God created marriage for his glory and so he and so but, you know, you know, where I think I, where, where this one-way love, this unconditional, unmerited love comes, is more often, not in a marriage like ours where you don't, you know, it's not, you don't see what we might call a troubled marriage, but it's, it's in those marriages where, you know, things aren't that great, and there's love. I think about, even in a church this small, we have some families where the husband and wife are are, are believer and unbeliever, Right? And for the believing spouse, that, that's, a, that's more difficult than I can ever imagine. That's the person, when I see them, I see the love of Christ more than what I think I see, what, I, what I'm trying to display in my own marriage. I see it. It's difficult. It's di- but that God's love is one way. And it's marked by self-sacrifice. You know, we don't get to define love on our own terms. And certainly not as the world defines it. The world gives us many Counterfeits to that love. How we love God and how we love one another is defined by God Himself, because God is love. This is the love of God. It's a one-way love and it's self-sacrifice. So John says, so and so he says, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Perfected. Perfected simply means it's complete. It's filled up. It's made perfect for those who live a life of obedience and walk in accordance to God's word. We do so because the love of God is perfected in us. The Greek grammar helps to enrich the meaning of what John is communicating. And I'm not a Greek scholar, but just the, the way the Greek language is for different words, you know, we look them up in, in our in our in our studies. Um, it's it's, it's an action verb. It's a verb. It's in the perfect tense. So we understand tenses in, in English. It's in a passive voice. I remember studying voice. and there, you know, we don't, That's part of Greek, not English. It's in a passive voice. And it's in the indicative mood. What does that mean? What does that mean? It's very, it simply means this. God is the one who does this work in my life. It's a verb action. And he's the one who performs it. It's for his glory. It's based upon a completed work. It's in the perfect tense. Perfect tense means it's a work that's occurred in the past. It's a completed action that's produced results that exist in the present. Something in the past, the results of which exist in the present, it's who I am in Christ. God's Christ has finished it. The work is done, it's finished. But I but I experience that in my life every single day. And it's the sole work of God in my life. It's in the passive voice. I am completely passive in the process. God has perfected that love in me. He's the one that's doing that. He's done that in my life. And it's who I am in Christ. It's the indicative mood. It's who I am in Christ. It's a state of being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through the glory of God alone. Here's the main point. As believers in Christ, the love of God belongs to us. It belongs to us as children of God. It's a complete work of God. And it's because of who we are in Christ that it belongs to us. And that love of God finds its expression in our love for one another. John says in 1 John 4, 7, "A beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not love. No, God, because God is love. Again, John says in verse five, but whoever keeps his word, him truly the love of God is perfected. And so here John links obedience to the word of God with the love of God. For the true child of God, hear me on this, for the true child of God, obedience to the commands of God are an expression. They're a fruit of a relationship with God. Based, on what the, based upon the love of God, a one-way self-sacrificing love, a work that God alone brings to completion. In our text, now in verses 7 and continuing, John says, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, In him, in him, that is Christ, and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the light is already shining. So what's John talking about? Old commandment, new commandment. Remember the false teachers were polluting the truth and they were placing it with a lie. And John's trying to deal with these false teachers and he reminds his readers that he's writing no new commandment. There's nothing new. John says there's nothing new. These false teachers are saying there's some new revelation. There's nothing new. This is the old commandment, the one you and he defines it. This is the one you've heard. It's the one you've heard. You've heard from the beginning. It's the one you have heard. So it's not, so it's not new. The, the proclamation that John makes is, is the same one he's saying to his readers, is the same one, the same message that you've heard in Jesus Christ from the beginning. Um, and even if, you look, if we look at verses 26 and 27, John says this, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Again, he's dealing with false teachers. But the anointing you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need of anyone to teach you. Does that mean we don't need any teaching? No, he's not talking about that. He means you don't have anyone to come along and teach you anything new. But as his anointing teaches you, John says, about everything, and is true, and is no lie. Just as it is taught to you, abide in him. Abide in his teachings. Remember, remember, false teachers always have an additional word from God. You'll hear that. They've got a word from God. There's the word of God. If their word doesn't match this word, it's an addition to God's word. And anything that contradicts God's word in part or in whole is a lie. That's why we need to be students of God's Word. That's why we need teachers. And we have teachers. That's a a gift of the Spirit. We have teachers, but we also need teachers who are also students of God's word. And if we want to be part of a church family that teaches God's word, we should expect at times to be a little uncomfortable. We should. Because reproof and correction are uncomfortable. They were they, they were for me when I was a kid. They are for me now, I watch it in my own grandkids. It's, un- it's uncomfortable. We should expect it. But remember this, it's not the job of the teacher to make you uncomfortable. That's the job of the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin in our lives. The writer of Hebrews says this, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one... He loves, and he chastised every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You're part of the liar group, he says. It's the, it's the reproof that leads to confession in the life of each and every believer, which give evidence to who we are in Christ. And so John reminds his readers, remember, and he reminds them of the true teachings of Christ, that which was from the beginning. He always is saying, going back to the beginning, back to the beginning. The Word of God remains unchanged. And what is that command? that remains unchanged. John says the old commandment is a new commandment. It's a new commandment. In John 13, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by what? Our love for one another. All people, we can know, they can know, we can know, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so the unchanging command of Christ is the same as from the beginning that we love one another. And this command of Christ to love one another is one that Christ taught, and it's one that he modeled and lived out in his life, and it's how his disciples were to live in relationship to one another. And it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not only true in Christ. John says in this epistle, but it's true in us as well because of the power of the Spirit. Profession is not enough. Your walk must match your talk. Okay, let me leave you with just three principles. If you have the outline, there's three principles there. I just quickly want to leave you with three principles. One, love and we've already talked about this, so this is already kind of baked into our, to, to our, to what we've seen in God's Word. Love finds its power in the person of Christ and in His Word to abide in Christ. Paul says this in Romans, for one will scarcely die for an unrighteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would die. But God showed his love for us. This is the model. He showed his love for us and that that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How can we love one another? How can we love like that? One way love. Self-sacrificial love. I mean, if you really think about it, how can you do it? You can't on your own. You just can't. It, it only comes from the power of God. Jesus said in John 15, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that, that does bear fruit, he prunes. Sometimes that can be painful. That it may bear more fruit. There's a purpose in it. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he who bears much fruit. For apart from me, underlineness, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. If anyone does does not abide in me, he's he's thrown away, like the branch, and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burnt. If you abide in me, Jesus says, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified. That ties into our third principle: that you may bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, Christ says, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John 14, prior to that, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, who the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him. You know him, for he dwells within you. Love finds its power in the person of Jesus Christ and in abiding in his word. Jesus says, abide. In me, principle number two, I'll leave you with this. John's love, I'm I'm sorry, love, God's love, love finds its pattern in the person of Jesus Christ. Or model. You can write model. I I chose pattern because we used power to begin with. But finds its model, its example, its pattern in the person of Jesus Christ. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus said, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. Love has its pattern in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our model. We are being conformed to his image, to be like him. It's because of Jesus and the life that he has lived that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining, John tells us in this epistle. Too many times, and I think I just—I think I said this a little earlier, too many times, we leave the life of Christ out of the gospel. We simply speak of his death and resurrection. However, it is his righteousness, it is his righteous, sinless life that satisfies the justice of God the Father so that his death is a propitiation for our sins. No righteous not life for Christ, no propitiation for our sins. When you share the gospel, Be sure you share the sinless Son of God, the righteous life of Christ, his death and his resurrection. Remember in John 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Love has its pattern in the person Of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, love finds its purpose in the glory of Jesus Christ. God has created man for his glory. God's purpose in creating us has not changed one iota. But what sin has destroyed, God has restored in reconciling man to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and all for the glory of Jesus. Christ. By this, John says, all people will know. I'm sorry, this was Jesus. Jesus said this. He told us, when he was telling to his disciples, a new commandment to give Jesus. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's for his glory. In Matthew 5, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket." but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Love finds its purpose in the glory of Jesus Christ. Christ is glorified in our confession of sin because it points to his atoning work on the cross. We have been reconciled to God through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Christ is glorified in our obedience to his word because, in walking in obedience to him, we reflect. We reflect his image to a lost and dying world. And Christ is glorified in our love for one another because, one way, self sacrificing love is only possible by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It comes from God and God alone. The world can counterfeit it, but they cannot duplicate it. How can we know that we are in Christ? John says you can know in the same way that all people can know by our walk in the light. So how's that love of God expressed in our love for one another? Here in this one another, Community Bible Church, how is that? How is that working for us? And maybe before I ask that personal application question in my own life or for our family, I need to ask it in my own life, in the life of our family. How's that working out in the one another in your home? All right, just to get personal. How's that working out in your house? You know, we can fake it here. We can't fake it at home. It's really hard to do. I've tried. <laughs> it doesn't work. Husbands, are you loving your wives with one way? Unmerited, unconditional, self-sacrificing love. What's unmerited about the love for your wife? What's unconditional about your love for your wife? What's self-sacrificing? And comes at great personal cost in your love for your wife. Wives, well, you don't get off the hook on that. Same questions. What's unmerited about your love for your husband? <laughs> What's unconditional about your love for your husband? What's self-sacrificing about your love for your husband? Kids, young people, your relationship to your parents, and your relationship to your siblings, and your relationship to one another—same questions. Is it unmerited? Is it unconditional? Is it self-sacrificing? John finishes this section that we're studying. In verses 9 through 11, but whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. That's just the reality, John says. Whoever loves his brother, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and he does and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You know, if the love of God isn't working in my life, in in the life of my family. It's not going to work in the family of families. Right here, it just won't. It can't. And if you want to avoid having to kind of love one another here in this community of believers, this one another of community Bible Church, you're going to have to avoid ministry. You're going to have to avoid getting involved with people because people are broken. We're broken. There's going to be conflict. And so you're just going to have to just maybe show up every once in a while, but don't get involved because the closer you get to people, this works in your house, right? That's where the people are the closest. The closer we get, the more we have to demonstrate that love for one another. But if the glory of Christ and the demonstration of God's love is my priority, and if it's your priority, then jump in. Jump in the ministry jump into the one another interactions that we have here at Community Bible Church. The power to love like that comes from the abiding word of Christ, comes from Christ. Am I doing that? Am I spending regular time in God's word? Am I making every effort to be a part of our assembly together? I don't mean you have to come to every single thing, but we have plenty of things offered where we get to get together and fellowship together. The pattern to love, the example, the model to love like that, is in the love of Christ. You know, am I following his example? Am I yielding to Christ and to his word in obedience? Do I welcome his reproof and correction? Oh, do I welcome his reproof and correction that I encounter when I'm in his word? And the purpose in loving like that is the glory of Jesus Christ. Am I one-minded? Am I one-minded? Are we one-minded in our pursuit of the glory of God? Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, John says, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him, in Jesus Christ, and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Abide in Christ and in his word. Love like Christ loves and love for the glory of God. Let's pray.